1: We, we tend to have this view uh, as Americans, or maybe not anymore, but we always have traditionally, that sort of the American Revolution is this, this arm-in-arm march to liberty against the British. Well, it's really
0: not. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Dr. Aaron Palmer, and he'll be discussing Charleston, South Carolina's most famous duel, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, the Hidden History of the American Revolution, by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Aaron Palmer. And he'll be discussing the duel between South Carolina's Henry Lawrence and John Grimke. One of the things we don't often consider about the American Revolution is the local politics of the matter. The politics of the 18th century can take you a career to get a handle on. But that's just the national political scene. Imagine after that, that each of the individual 13 colonies also had its own uh, tiny political worlds. Powerful people, uh, old rivalries, you name it. Uh, And then you see why a system, a place, uh, an institution like the Journal of the American Revolution becomes so important. Uh, Because that's all true. Uh, You have a national political scene, and you have smaller local political scenes. Uh, And no one can learn them all, but we can all try. Uh, But you really need to specialize in just one of those to truly get it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Aaron Palmer. Aaron Palmer, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Tell us about your background.
1: Um, Well, I'm a professor of history at Wisconsin Lutheran College and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin, which is kind of near Green Bay. Um, Did my undergraduate at UW Oshkosh, which was really good at the time because um, one of my professors was Andrew O'Shaughnessy, who is now the vice president at Monticello. (laughs) Um, And then I was able to go to Marquette for my MA and Georgetown for my PhD.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Well, actually, it was something I've been working on for a long time long time. It's sort of a, a long lost piece of the book I wrote called A Rule of Law, which was published, goodness, in 2014. Um, I didn't really quite know what to do with until fairly recently. Uh, whenever you write a book, um, you, you kind of find that there's things that you wanted to put in it that for whatever reason don't really fit here or there and they just kind of need to come out and either stand on their own or just honestly go in some cases. And this is something that I wasn't quite sure what to do with for the longest time and finally got motivated to do something with it, um, which is what you you see before you.
0: For those of us who may not be familiar, uh, tell us about Charleston in 1775.
1: Well, it was the fourth largest city in um, the British colonies at that time. And, you know, it wasn't, none of those cities were large. Um, You know, the largest would have been Philadelphia, Philadelphia, maybe, I want to say 30,000 plus people. Charleston was around 12,000 people. Um, it was at least 50% slaves. Um, the area around the Low Country tended to be 50 to 75% slaves. It was a very wealthy city contrasted with, of course, the horrendous poverty of slavery. Um, if you really want to get a sense of that, read Crevacore's um, ninth letter, where he talks about Charleston and these these great contrasts between the wealth and the the poverty of slavery. But you certainly would have seen um, a beautiful city with um, the most magnificent churches and social institutions. They had horse races that people came from miles around to see. It was a great metropolis, to be sure, a beautiful city. But again, one built on the backs of this terrible institution of slavery. And that's always the great irony you have to deal with in this period, Whether you're dealing with someone like Henry Lawrence or the city in general, it's always there um, and you always have to sort of keep it in mind. Um, But uh, again, in the South, to be sure, the Southern colonies, meaning like, say, south of Delaware, it was by a mile the largest city, the busiest port, and really the only city of any size in the Southern colonies.
0: Who was Henry Lawrence?
1: Well, Henry Lawrence was a very wealthy merchant in Charleston, and um, you know he, he made some of his money on the slave trade. But he was one of many um, international merchants who did a lot of different business with London, um, brought in goods from London, sold raw materials to the British, and eventually he got into planting. He owned five plantations at one point. Um, the most prominent one was called Mepkin, and don't go looking for it if you're in Charleston. Well, actually, you can. It's called Mepkin Abbey today. It's a monastery. And um, the house, the plantation are long gone, although the family graveyard, including Lawrence's grave, actually remains there. So Lawrence is an incredibly wealthy man. I would say one of, probably one of the richest people in North America at the time of the American Revolution. He was... Um, I want to say he considered himself an old man by that time. Um, I don't know if we would define him that way today, necessarily. Um, Very wealthy, again, um, a gentleman by every stretch of the definition of the 18th century. Um, Very sensitive, I think, about his reputation and his honor. And he was in a difficult position during the imperial crisis because he was he was a conservative of sorts. Um, that's a hard word to deal with uh, in this period because it can mean different things. But he was a supporter of American rights, to be sure. He greatly objected to British attempts to tax Americans without their consent. But at the same time, he was just very disdainful of things like the Sons of Liberty and extra legal actions. Um, to resist British authority. And he was very worried from the early days of the resistance that the resistance had gone too far, that it had broken the law, that it had become violent, that it was itself lawless. And that's kind of the position he finds himself in in this article um, fairly late in 1775, where he, not for the first time, is kind of being accused of, on some level, being soft on supporting the revolution and he was not soft he became a president of the continental congress he was a prisoner of war held by the british for years in the tower of london but by the perception of some of the um what he would probably call the hotheads he was um he was not sufficiently enthusiastic shall we say about the revolution
0: talk a bit about the other side of this matter the Grimke family The Grimke family. Well,
1: at the time, they really weren't much of anything. Um, The patriarch of the family, so to speak, was a man called John Paul Grimke, who was a silversmith. And in the world of the 18th century, he's an artisan. So he would be very much like Paul Revere, as a good example. Um, Very skilled. Silversmith would be a high-level artisan, but not someone who would rise to the ranks of the elite. Now, the... The, the term elite in you know, early America is different than it would be in Britain. Um, it's not based on blood, and it's not based necessarily on birth. It's, it's wealth for more than anything. So the elite is not a closed group. And Grimke, as a silversmith, was able to make a good living. He was able to buy a plantation, so sort of able to move up the ladder socially, so to speak, and he got very lucky, in a sense, in that his son, John Faugerod Grimke, was married into the Drayton family. And that was, if not the wealthiest and most prominent, one of the wealthiest and most prominent families in the colony. So that marriage served to truly elevate the Grimkes from, you know, a level of being an artisan, which you could call sort of middle class in this period, to really the elite. And it happens within a generation. You know, John Faucherad Grimke goes on to become himself a great planter as part of the Drayton family and pass that fortune on to his heirs. Um, kind of the ironic thing, I guess, is um, very famously the Grimke sisters go on to become some of the the great abolitionists of the early 19th century. So they are... They're from this family, but I, I can't imagine um, the patriarch here would have had any interest in that. Um, so in a sense, John Fosherod Grimke is kind of a a social climber, so to speak. And on that level, he might have been met with some level of mm, skepticism by the existing elite, by someone like Henry Lawrence, who was a very established gentleman and who, um, who, who was actually friends with the family and had taken an interest in the young man and tried to help him out, but from a, a definitely unequal point of view. Um, Lawrence would have been a patron. The Grimkeys would have been clients. That kind of thing would have been very common in the Charleston of the period. So they are not equals. And for, for Grimke to see himself as such, even that would have been kind of a social... Um, affront to someone like Henry Lawrence. What
0: caused the rift between them?
1: Well, basically um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of factions at this point, but within the revolutionary group, there's sort of two broad factions. There are people like um, Henry Lawrence who believes that the British have violated American rights and believes that needs to be addressed and resisted. um, But cautiously, and within a framework of law and in maintaining order. And then there's people like Peter Timothy, who was um, a printer, the printer of the South Carolina Gazette. Um, Someone associated with, say, Christopher Gadsden, the radicals, the Sons of Liberty. Uh, Christopher Gadsden is called the Sam Adams of the South, if that tells you anything. And that's a group that really was willing to resort to far more violent and dubious tactics to resist the british you know for example when you're dealing with something like um the the tea act of 1773 you know how do you resist it it's fairly obvious there's this physical thing there's the tea there's the people who are meant to distribute it well you target them you target the tea and you intimidate you terrify you terrorize and so the best known stories of this of course were in boston but not just there. You know, there's a a fairly famous story of Henry Lawrence during the Stamp Act crisis where um, the key to resistance in that for the Sons of Liberty was preventing the stamped paper from ever being used. And it worked. Not a single penny of it was ever collected in America or in North America. Well, one night a mob shows up at Henry Lawrence's front door and they they tell him, we've heard that you have stamped paper hiding in your basement And he's just horrified by this. He's uh, affronted by this attack on his honor that he would do such a thing. He's horrified by the fact that his sick wife is in the house. Um, Eventually, he talks these people down. But he was very sensitive about the bullying. And especially, I think, about the willingness of the radicals to strip away the rights of people they deemed To be not sufficiently enthusiastic about the revolution to label them as in the words of the time inimical to liberty an enemy of liberty to shut down their business to socially ostracize them so lawrence was not willing to do things like say for example open people's mail unauthorized and just start looking at it to try and determine whether they were sufficiently enthusiastic about the revolution Whereas someone like Peter Timothy and his friend, John Paul Grimke, or John Fosherod Grimke, were perfectly willing and very eager to do so. So that's really where this clash starts, I think. And with the frustration among the sons of liberty like Grimke and Timothy um, And the impatience they had with someone like Lawrence, they want action now, especially in this late hour of 1775, when in the view of many of them, the war has already begun. And it's sort of a, what are we waiting for? Why aren't we dealing with the threat within as well as the threat without? And Lawrence kind of just gets caught up in the middle of this, I think, very um, unexpectedly as a member and, in fact, as the the leader of what was called the Committee of Public Safety, the, um, for lack of a better word, the executive committee of the resistance government or the resistance movement in Charleston that worked on behalf of what was called the Provincial Congress, kind of a um, resistance legislature, if you will.
0: Let's talk a bit about dueling in the 1770s. Uh, was this common at that time?
1: I, I don't want to say it was common. Um, a, I mean, the, the sort of the formal ritual duel that we're talking about here was something that would only occur among among gentlemen, which, you know, is a term that we just kind of apply to anybody today, but had a specific meaning at this period. Um, it, it was kind of a last resort. Um, there, I, I've been through what survives of the court records in 18th century South Carolina. And there aren't a lot of prosecutions for it. That doesn't mean it wasn't happening. Um, it was more common probably than you'd think. Um, but, you know, I don't know of a, an enormous amount of well-publicized or written about incidents in Charleston other than the ones with involving Henry and Lawrence that uh, I've written about. Um, But generally, whether you're talking about 18th century England or 18th century Charleston, uh, violence in that way is probably far more publicly acceptable than it would be today. Um, If someone were to attack your honor as a gentleman, they may as well be attacking your life. And that cannot go unanswered. If it goes unanswered, the assumption is, Well, the challenger is right, and you have no honor as an individual. So you you have to do something ultimately, whether it results in a duel or not. And if if you follow this story with Lawrence, you see he had no intention or no interest in actually firing a gun at anybody. A lot of this is purely ritualized, um, a contest of honor more than anything else. You know, and you can even see that in the most famous duel of all between Hamilton and Burr. um, It's again just sort of who can out honor the other one in some ways. And Lawrence, knowing the rules, knowing this culture, is able to run rings around his opponent who really doesn't at this point. So um, technically, it's illegal. Um, again it's not much prosecuted partly because the people who would have prosecuted are the people who would have been doing it um, and in terms of how common it is I don't have an answer statistically for you other than that you know again it, it happens probably more frequently than, than the record actually
0: shows would be my guess. How did the duel between these two men come about?
1: Well essentially um, you know Lauren's is confronted with john paul grimke and grimke says you know kind of hey um i found i have this this bunch of letters um that aren't mine by the way they belong to other people and i I'm, I'm just happen to be in possession of them should we open them um, he's speaking to lawrence as a member of the committee of public safety and you know the idea again is let's open these letters let's look through them. Let's try to find out who is not sufficiently enthusiastic about the revolution. And then we'll, you know, quote unquote, deal with that person. And Lawrence is horrified by this. He he wants no part of this whatsoever. So this opens up this whole discussion about where your loyalties really lie, essentially. And that discussion leads to this little mini personal feud between Grimke and Lawrence whether you have the kind of young, uber-patriotic hothead challenging the more established, conservative leader who he is impatient with again. And I, I don't think, you know, Lawrence never had any ill intention toward this guy. He's someone he had known for a long time, someone he had sort of patronized. And, you know, in the end, though, like I said, you, you cannot deal with this, this challenge to honor and just let it pass, just let it slide. um, That would be a mark of your dishonor. So Lawrence has to defend himself and it leads to this whole ritualistic process of choosing what are called seconds or representatives of passing notes and negotiating the terms of the duel. all of which uh, Grimke was very bad at and often bungled. And then it ultimately leads to the duel itself where, you know, again, Lawrence has no interest in actually firing a shot. He has no interest in, in hurting this guy. He simply wants to prove his own honor and the dishonor of his opponent and Grimke by firing at Lawrence, um, though he didn't hit him and Lawrence then choosing not to respond. Um, Lawrence wins the duel he wins the battle without ever injuring anyone because he ultimately has stood up for his honor, demonstrated his superior ethics, as it were, and and comes out on top of this thing.
0: How does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better?
1: Well, again, I think um, we, we tend to have this view uh, as Americans, or maybe not anymore, but we always have traditionally that sort of the American Revolution is this This arm-in-arm march to liberty against the British. Well, it's really not. It's far messier than many people would like to admit. There's a dark side to this. And, you know, when you look at things like the um, attack on Governor Hutchinson in Massachusetts, the burning down of his house, the tarring and feathering, the, the, the violence of the revolution. Revolutions are not... Um, not generally kind, they're messy, they're bloody, and there's a lot of mess and a lot of blood here. And if nothing else, I think this incident really highlights again the, the conflicting views among even the revolutionaries about what is the best way to resist what we can all agree on at a minimum is bad policy, is a violation of our right. These are sincerely held beliefs, that the British are attacking American liberty. The question, again, is how severe is the attack, and what kind of response does it warrant? Does an attack on liberty warrant the overthrow of the rule of law? There's a reason I I titled my book A Rule of Law. These people in South Carolina are obsessed with uh, the, the rule of law. This is something that deeply concerned Lawrence, is in in resisting British tyranny, might we not become tyrants ourselves? Might we not at some point infringe upon the liberty of conscience of others in trying to enforce some kind of revolutionary standard, even in basic things like violating the privacy of someone's correspondence in the mail? Um, if you're familiar with the French Revolution, which is far more radical, one of the um, leaders of the Reign of Terror was a man named Colate de He once said liberty, or excuse me, patriotism must always be at the same height. If it drops for a moment, it is no longer patriotism. So this is what Lawrence is worried about, this, this evaluating of someone's patriotism, that, okay, if it's not up here, if it's an inch below up here, then it's not enough. It's not enough that you oppose the British. You have to do it at this level. And if you don't, you're an enemy. And we're going to ruin you and attack you and maybe even physically attack you. So uh, I think we we have to keep these things in mind with our revolution, that it was messy, that yes, of course, it's about, about liberty at its very core. But at the same time, in defending liberty... Is it also not a worry that we maybe destroy it too, and that's what Henry Lawrence is worried about he's a um I think a forgotten figure in the American Revolution to a large extent <clears throat> It's kind of sad that he is um, you know it's it's more complicated in modern times because he was a slave trader and the owner of five plantations, and I've written about Lawrence and slavery elsewhere but um, there's a lot we can learn from someone like uh, like Henry Lawrence, a lot of different lessons from the revolution. and I'd encourage anyone out there to go and look at the papers of Henry Lawrence, sixteen volumes published by University of South Carolina Press. It is a treasure trove of information on revolutionary Charleston and the South, um, an indispensable
0: resource. Aaron Palmer, thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.